0: It's December 27th, 1991, in my home group, Midtown Group, right here in Washington, D.C. And, um, thank you. If any of you happen to be staying in town an extra day, we will be meeting tomorrow night at 8 o'clock at uh, 22nd and P Street, right by DuPont Circle. And everybody is welcome. And, um, okay. I'm going to tell you in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. And, um, I was thinking, um, that I um, was never, I was weird before I took a drink, and um, <laughs> by the time I took a drink, I really needed to take a drink, because um, if you lived, uh, and, and you did um, <laughs> the way I did inside my skin, um, you needed some kind of relief too, and I didn't know that's what I needed. I just knew that um, from a very early age, I felt um, I felt really afraid. I never felt like I fit in anywhere. I was terrified of people in life um, from as far back as I can remember, I was um, I was always really quiet and really shy, and I had like a couple friends, and um, and I, my little sister used to like protect me in the neighborhood and um, from the people that weren't trying to do anything to me. But I've always been kind of paranoid too. And, um, and I was thinking uh, my first drink uh, is uh, happened at about the same time of my dad's last drink, which is really an important part of my story. And um, and I was about thirteen years old and um, and I had been around alcohol my dad 's an alcoholic also um, sober and alcoholic's Anonymous, also longer than me and um, but uh, I had been around alcohol through my childhood and, uh, and I remember parties and uh, like on new year 's Eve and I remember um, I didn't think anything special about it. I just noticed that people got really happy. And my mom especially, she would get, like, really happy, but then she'd have to go to sleep. And she's not an alcoholic. But a couple other people who hung around our house were alcoholics. And they um, and they drank a lot. And they got really happy. And we had this guy come over on New Year's Eve. We'd always have the party with, like, cases and cases of all different kinds of alcohol. And um, I never thought about taking a drink, but I saw that, the, like, grown-ups were cool to hang out with then. And, um, and other than that, it, I didn't really... Um, I didn't really talk to him, and um, so I took my first drink um, when I was about in between seventh and eighth grade, about 13 years old. And somehow I knew that um, when I was going to drink, I needed to set out newspaper on the floor because I had a feeling I was going to throw up, and um, and I wanted to be prepared. So uh, my dad was like in detox or something, and. um, and my mom was off somewhere my sister was sleeping or something and I had a friend over and we laid out Newspaper on the dining room floor and made concoctions of like all kinds of shots and I threw up and um, and Just like I expected and I don't remember anything uh, magical happening or uh, Feeling like I'm gonna do that again um, And I didn't drink for a while after that but um but I remember in seventh and eighth grade feeling like I was like a um I was one of the kids who was like a straight A student, and um, I never talked in class because i don 't have any friends and um, but i would um, I would do really well in school and I was I had a really close relationship with my mom and my sister and um, and those were and like a couple other people in my neighborhood and those were the only people um, that i'd really talked to and and the magic of alcohol happened for me it started happening around ninth grade and um and I, I was with the same people in my neighborhood, uh, the same girl that I drank my, my first drink with, and there were a bunch of like there were girls and guys. We would do stuff like play kickball or whatever we would do, and um, and the guys started drinking, and uh, then we started drinking, and I liked the way alcohol. That was the time I liked the way alcohol made me feel because all of a sudden I didn't feel like. Um, like I was so ugly, or I was—I um, I could talk to people, and that is such a freedom because when I'm stuck inside myself, and I couldn't tell you this at the time, but it was just miserably uncomfortable and terrifying. And I felt like I could talk to people, and I felt like I could get have friends, and it wasn't just a feeling because it's what happened. Um, in between my—I um, didn't drink very much throughout, um, throughout ninth grade, but in between ninth and tenth grade, something happened, and my whole life changed. And um, and I no longer, like, was taking the GT classes that I was taking, and I was hanging out with, I started to get, like, a host of friends. And, um, and they were what you'd call, it, like, um, uh, freaks or, or whatever. And, um, yeah. and they're like Grateful Dead and stuff like that. And, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, in the, in the 10th grade, I also got my first, um, real boyfriend. And, um, and that was like really important because he was, uh, he was like five or six years older than me. He was old enough to buy beer, and, um, and that was really good. And, um, and I remember I, I really felt really good. And, um, I've been a blackout drinker almost from day one, also. And, um, I would go through different stages of blacking out, passing out, or throwing up, and, um, crying is another one. And, um, and, but I would, uh, it, it wasn't a big consequence. Like it was really no big deal. I was having a lot of fun. I was um I was going out every weekend and um and my drinking was only on the weekends at this time through like the first half of my tenth grade year. And um and I'd go out and every time I went out I got drunk and um and because I, I didn't know I had alcoholism, I just knew I'd like to drink and um and if it made you feel the way it made me feel you'd want to drink too. And um and so Throughout 10th grade, I, I ended up also um, I got it my first job and um, at a at a Spencer shop in the mall, and that's when I started stealing. And um, and I got a job with a friend of mine, and um, and we would take uh, like 50. It's before like computer registers and stuff, so we would take like 50 bucks a day, and we'd like have a system where we would. Be there, and some one of us would drop it on the floor, and the other one would stick it in her boot, and um, and we'd have fifty dollars, so we could um, get some cocaine to go with our alcohol, and um, and we did that every day for uh, for a really long time, and um, throughout the tenth grade, but um, nothing major really happened. Um, other than that, I was drinking. Uh, the drinking got more and more, and. Um, and everything else was starting to become less and less important. And um, school was definitely less important. The relationship with my family was really less important. And um, also, by this time, my dad was like, uh, he was sober probably about a year or so. And um, and I remember telling him um, that I hated him and that he had ruined my life and that it was his fault that I was the way I am and that he had his chance with me. Um, to be a father and that he blew that and I never wanted to talk to him again. And um and that's really important because through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous I, so I have a really good relationship with him today and I'll talk about that more later. But um but so I was in the um I was in the tenth grade and um and drinking and having a lot of fun and um and I decided to do the work program where I would um take less schools so I could get out earlier and start drinking. And um and by the eleventh grade, I was drinking at every every possible time I could, and um, and having a uh, really good time. I would um, I would black out almost all the time, and um, I would fall asleep in concerts. I would call it resting, and. Um, <laughs> I, would, I I remember going to an Eric Clapton concert like um, right around here, and I remember just thinking, I just got to go out in the hallway and rest uh, because i'm really tired and um it's not casting out i'm just really tired and um <laughs> and, um, and but when I was in eleventh grade I took less school and I, and i didn't care um, it's when I started to not care and um, not care about myself and not care about um, not care about my grades, not care about what I was doing to myself and and I remember, um, my life was unmanageable by this time, but I could, I would never have been able to tell you that. And, um, and, um, I had absolutely no care and concern about anybody else at this time except myself and getting drunk. And, um, and I remember I got pregnant that year, um, with this guy and, um, and, and had an abortion. And the thing about, I drank through that, um, like I really didn't care, and I. But I, but I had my friends around me, and and um. And I thought, you know, this is going to be okay. This is no big deal. This is just one of the consequences I have to pay. And there were many more consequences that I continue to pay. And um, and but I, I didn't feel, and um, and I was just thinking about that today. That um, you know, the the evidence was overwhelming at really early on that uh, there was something wrong with the way I drank, and um, and I cannot drink safely. But it it. The um, the benefits of drinking were um, far 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 greater than the consequences and and so I went through that and it was okay and um and but little by little I started to become like not so happy to be around when I was drinking and um and I would gradually drink away every every person that was close to me and so by the time I was the, in the twelfth grade I had. Um, Probably like one or two friends and my boyfriend and um, and I had gotten to this point. I mean, it was uh with him. I w- I was crazy and um and he was crazy and um and we dated. We were both like drinking all all the time and crazy and um. And uh, I would I would say, let's go to the party. And we'd go to the party. And, um, and then I'd get really drunk and I'd say, I want to go home. And he would get in the car to take me home. And I'd say, I don't want to go home anymore. I want to go back and get drunk. And, um, and he would say, I'm taking you home. And we'd get in these fights and um, and I'd break the gear. Sh- I think I broke three of his gear shifts in his car because I, was, I would get so mad that he wouldn't do what I wanted him to do. And, uh, and all I wanted to do was go back and drink. And I couldn't understand why he wouldn't take me back there. And that not paying attention to how I'm screaming or acting belligerent. I mean, I was totally and completely belligerent. And, um, and, but, so that prompted my behavior in that relationship prompted a lot of, um, like black eyes and, um, like a whole bunch. Of, I mean, we we're, bo- we were both really sick and, um, but I loved him. And, um, <laughs> 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 and so, uh, so I stuck out for a good five or six years and, um, and, uh. And so and so by the time I was graduating from high school I wasn't the type of girl who um, who could do cheerleading or sports or anything like that. Um I, I just couldn't do after school activities because um they would take up the time of my drinking and um and I and besides the fact that of the fear of people and um and never being good enough. No matter what I was never good enough and um and um couldn't do anything, and, um, so I didn't do that. So the time I, by the time I graduated from high school, I remember thinking this was supposed to be a happy day. You know what I mean? I'm graduating high school, and um, and I'd been going to the same high school for six years, and um, had a lot of friends there at one time. Oh no, no, it was like seventh to twelfth grade. It wasn't like, <laughs> no. but um, so. On the, on the night of, um, I remember on the night of my graduation thinking something's wrong, something, that, I mean that's like a clear camera shot, something's really wrong here because I didn't feel happy, I didn't feel like, um, I deserved to graduate high school, I didn't feel like, um, I'd accomplished anything because I was just get over. And, um, I, I, I'm the type of person who'll do as, at least as possible to get by. And, um, and, but that wasn't what it was. It was I felt, um, I felt completely alone and completely isolated and, Um, And the only thing I knew to do was drink and the only people that would hang out with me was this guy And I knew I was going to go over to his house that night And um, and I I had had so many mornings of waking up thinking I can't believe you know Why am I doing this? I hate myself and um, and I hated myself and and that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization and waking up and thinking You know what am I doing? And I knew that's what I was going to do that night because I couldn't go to any of the parties where everybody was because um, I had I had gotten to the point where you needed to take care of me when I drank, and um, because I would like, you know, like cry, and life was depressing, or I would pass out, and um, and you'd have to carry me because I would pass out to the point where like, uh, you would think I was dead. You know, I would be like, she's no pulse, and um, and um, and so people were really, really sick of me, and um, and so I, I went over to his house, and I was like. I just remember waking up in the morning and I knew something was really wrong and um, my first real consequences from uh, drinking happened about a week after my graduation from high school and I remember i'd gone to i went to an all day party at um, this place called Wilmore's Park in brandywine Maryland and um, I was they'd have like all these bands come and you'd spend the day drinking and um, and i we got there probably sometime in the mid afternoon and left um, really late in the day and i I don't remember a lot of that day. Um, I remember being in and out of blackouts and um and passing out and I didn't drive but um I, my car was at my boyfriend's house, and when we got there for some reason, I insisted on driving home and I always drove drunk um, I drove drunk all the time, but this time I was really really drunk and um and I don't, I don't remember getting in the car I don't remember anything that um the next thing I remember is his house was probably about five miles away from my house, and the the next thing I remember is va- I vaguely remember hitting a car, and I couldn't remember if it was me driving. I, I really had no clue. And the next thing I knew, I was um, hit a tree, and my head's on the steering wheel, and there's blood coming out of my head, and I'm going, and this was like one or two o'clock in the morning, and um, and I, when I remember kind of hitting that car I remember thinking you better get home because you're going to really get in trouble and um and uh, for some reason there was this guy walking on the side of the road um, at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning back on a back road and, um, and I remember my first conscious thought was I was not driving this car and that's why I told him I wasn't driving the car somebody else was driving and my head's like on the steering wheel with blood all over the place and I'm like that wasn't me and, um, and uh, <laughs> The next thing I know, I was in an ambulance, and there were ambulances and police cars around. And I thought, did I hit somebody? And um, and uh, that thought quickly went away. And um, and they said, and and the paramedics are telling me, you know, you hit somebody. She's okay. And um, and I've heard since I've been an alcoholic, it's seconds and inches, and seconds and inches, and I wouldn't be here tonight. And that's one of the times that I can clearly see that if I had been like one foot over I would have killed her and um or myself and uh, or the person who's walking down the side of the road. But I remember um being in that ambulance and from that point on I was I was pretty sober and um and they took me to the hospital to get stitches and um and I remember being there and they, and I was so crazy. I was acting like just like I'd heard refuse a breathalyzer and so I refused a breathalyzer and um and so they said you have to take the breathalyzer, and I'm like, I'm not going to take the breathalyzer. And, um, and so they handcuffed me to the hospital bed, and because um, I was scaring the this little kid was there with his dad, and he was coming to get like medicine or something because he was sick, and I was scaring him. And, um, and so they so they handcuffed me to that hospital bed, and they took me down to the um, police station and after that. And um, a friend of mine was the magistrate there, and um, I remember, And so he gave me cigarettes, and um, they took me up to the holding cell or whatever. And that, and that was another time I thought, this is not happening, and um, this is not me, you know. I have a lot of potential, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm not supposed to be here. And, um, and, uh, but there I was, and, and I remember I felt humiliated, and, um, and I had to call my, I, I, what I eventually happened is I eventually agreed to take a breathalyzer test because they weren't going to let me go home if I didn't take a breathalyzer test. And by the time I took the breathalyzer, I, I still had a .22 blood alcohol level, and that was hours after I had taken, hours after I had taken the last drink. And um, the thing about that is, I was functioning pretty well at that time too. That was like my functioning level of um, alcohol. And um, and so my mom and dad came and picked me up. My mom and dad got divorced when right when I started drinking, and um, and he got sober. And um, but they both um, came and um, and picked me up and and took me home, and they had no idea how much I was drinking. But my, I remember my dad had a talk with me that day, and, um, and I I've so much couldn't hear a thing he said. And um, he said, you know, I'm an alcoholic, and there might be a chance that you're an alcoholic. And I thought, I am not an alcoholic because I am never going to be like you, and I'm not going to do the things you've done, and um, that's the last thing I'm going to be. And, but I didn't say that. I said, yeah, whatever. And um <laughs> But I remember him trying to explain to me that day um, that I didn't have to drink. He said, you don't, he said, just think of it this way. You just don't have to drink today. And I thought, you are crazy. You don't get it. Why would I not drink today if I know I'm going to drink on Thursday? And uh, I so much, um, I mean, I really, why, why would I not drink today? And um and this was hours after I, you know, I got out of the holding cell for my DWI. And, um, and I was supposed to start a job the next day, and um, I had to call in and say I got in a car accident because other than my head, the whole left side of my body was like black and blue. And um, I didn't think that would be a really good way to start my new job. And um, so I called in sick um, with a car accident, but I started that Tuesday. And, um, and I got a job at uh, this Midas muffler shop in Burke where I lived. and. Um, and I fit right in there. <laughs> and I, you know, I, uh, I worked with a bunch of alcoholics, and um, and I worked there for the next two and a half years, where I really, really hit a bottom. And um, and I always, um, I forget that, you know, I say I worked with a lot of alcoholics and a lot of people who were who drank a lot like I did, and um, and they're the first people I felt comfortable around. You know, because I didn't feel comfortable around my friends at high school anymore. They didn't like me, and um. And they didn't want to be around me, but I felt comfortable there. But there was one guy, um, that I worked with whose name was Carrie, who was sober. And, um, and he was the first person who really, um, who took me to my first meeting that, um, that I went to years before I got sober. And I remember I went to his third anniversary. But I started working at this job, and, um, and I loved it because everybody drank. We had lockers where we could keep alcohol, and, um, and I, I was, um, I started college um, also at George Mason, which was right down the street from my house. Um, this was in the summer of 1988 that I got my first DWI, and I was starting college um, in September of 1988, and I got my job right in there, too. And, um, and so I was starting college, and I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to straighten out my act. I'm just going to drink, you know, a little bit, and um, just enough to feel comfortable, and, um, and I'm going to go to school, and everything's going to be okay, and I'm not going to, um, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna like myself and um and uh, and stop doing things that uh, make me hate myself. Okay. And um so I started school and um and was working part time at this um muffler shop and I did really well in school. I don't know how I did really well in school, but um for the first two semesters I I was in school I got like on the dean's list and and did really well and um but I was Continuing to drink every day. And, um, I remember, like, for that year, I would drink and I would drive drunk. I would drive, I got off work at 6:30, and I would start drinking before I got off work. And I drank beer. Um, mostly I drank beer, and, um, or I drank whatever was there, but I loved beer. And, um, and so I would drink to the point that I was really, really drunk, and then I would drive home, and, um, every day I would drive home, there was this gravel road, and, um, and it might, I worked only like five minutes from my house, but, um, and this gravel road, and I would come to on the gravel, and um, and be like, "Oh my God, I can't believe I'm passing out while I'm driving." But I did it every single day, and um, and I, after my first year in college, I decided I really couldn't go to college anymore because I could not. It at this point, um, anything and everything that got in the way of my drinking, I had to get rid of, and um, and I was getting in. Um, I was getting in a lot of fights with this guy that I was dating, and I remember like being holed up in the um, in the Midas muffler shop, and he would like drive his truck up on the grass and I'd be hiding in the back and um and it was it was horrible and um it's kind of funny now but um but it was really horrible and and by this time I had had uh, enough um, bruises or black eyes that I wasn't allowed to see him anymore. My mom said, "You cannot see him anymore he's not to come to the house he's not to do this and um and i remember one night i uh i you know i'd have to make i was still going to see him i wasn't going to stop seeing him and um and so i would i would stay late at work and i would um and i and the guys i worked with were older than me and there was a bar in the same like shopping center complex that i worked in so i could drink in the bar with them um when i was with them and so we had gone over there to watch a football game or something after work on sunday and um and I was drinking, like, when I went to the bars, I would drink vodka and tonics. And, um, and so I drank a lot of vodka and tonics, and I was so absolutely wasted. And I called up this guy to come meet me, and I kept, like, calling him and saying, like, come in a half an hour. Oh, no, I'm still doing more work, and I'm calling from the bar. And, um, and so he eventually came and had to meet me. Like, I'd have to meet him behind the shopping center because even the people at my work wouldn't let me see him because uh, he was, it was absolutely crazy. And so he came and picked me up, and, um, and I don't remember what I said. Um, but I really, really pissed him off because he I remember he had a toyota um, pickup truck, and I remember him reaching over and um, opening the door and pushing me out and um, and run, he ran over my foot and um, and and i was I was like semi in and out of blackouts but um and he put it in reverse to come back over and run back over me and um, and there were these two guys in the van behind me that came out and picked me up and um, and because he was going to run back over me to kill me and um and they picked me up, and I remember they're like, "We have to call the police," and I'm like, "No, you can't call the police." And um, and so they're like, "Okay, then we have to at least take you t- tell his parents." And I was like, "All right." And uh, I remember when they were in this van, and I'd never seen him before, and um, and they carried me into his house, and um, with like my foot all totally messed up and bruised, and they're like, "Look what your son did." And I felt like um, I mean, I was completely drunk, and um, and I felt so. Bad um like all I wanted to do was just um, drink myself into oblivion um, and they took me home and they called the police and i I couldn't file a police report because I was so absolutely drunk that no one's gonna believe a word I say and um and it was and it was crazy and um I kept seeing him after that for probably like six more months and um <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and but uh but uh so i this i couldn't stop drinking by this point and um and so i I would see him on and off, and so I, we we like i think we broke up for a while after that and i um and i was at another um i was out at another all day party where I met um this other guy in the blackout, and the next thing I knew I was moving in with him and um and I swear to God I had no idea who he was and um and uh but I had gotten to the point where i my mom was rising up to like how I was drinking, and she would like wait up for me and um and I would like when I got home, I had to bring extra beers with me because I needed to fall asleep, and uh as drunk as I was it wasn't drunk enough to fall asleep because I had to have some more when I got home and so i'd got like I would stash beers in, in whatever part of clothes I had on, and I would like run inside and try to hide them somewhere really quickly um before she would come down the stairs and um and find me and um and so that was getting to be really a pain. So I moved in with him and um because I had anything that got in where my drinking was uh, done and um and right around this time I got my second DWI and um and as a result and it was like within a year it was like right over a year since um, my last DWI. and I and I remember um, I wasn't going to tell anybody about it because I had gone to ASAP for my first DWI and they said there's a 50% chance you're an alcoholic if you get one DWI and there's an 80% chance if you get two. And um, So for some reason that stuck out to me. So I wasn't going to tell anybody because I didn't want to be an alcoholic. And and so I hired a lawyer and and I went to court and um, they charged me as a second offense within five years. And for that I got... um, uh, like a, a really strict, um, high fine, 180 days in jail with 175 suspended, 100 hours of community service, lost my license for three years, and um, and was like completely, um, I had nothing. And I remember um, my lawyer got it so I could go um, to spend the days in jail on the weekends so I wouldn't lose my job. And um, and so I went to court on Monday, and I had to come back on a Friday. And, um, and by the time I was living with this guy, but I remember calling my mom from the, from the payphone at the jail, telling her I was at the beach, and um, and uh, and it was and the thing about it was that really scared me. And looking back, is that it really wasn't a big deal. Um, that really wasn't a big deal. The second DWI was much less humiliating, much less um, you know awful than the first one because it was just part of what I had to do, and uh, I had to drink and. Um, and there was no question that um, that I was going to drink, and um, I didn't care. Um, I had no care of what was in the way, and so it was a really convenient situation for me to move in with this guy because he didn't have a car and I didn't have a driver's license. So he would drive me around, and um, in my car, and uh, or or yeah, like that. he would drive me around. I had the car, and uh, he had the license. And um, but I remember he picked me up from from the jail on the Sunday night that I went and. And it was like this is no big deal, and there's a 7-Eleven within about 500 yards of the um, of the jail, and um, and I was there in less than two minutes, and I drank a 12-pack by the time I got home, and um, because I had to, and um, there was absolutely nothing I could do, and um, and, and what eventually happened is. Um, I ended up moving out of there, and I was going to go back to school and um, and straighten out my life. And um, because I had done things with the people that, that I worked with, um, I uh, I would do anything if you would um, pay attention to me because I felt so lonely and so afraid. And um, and so I had um, I um, in, while I was dating this guy, I would um, I would date these guys that I was working with, and they were married. And um, they're, um, the the one guy. Um, they ended up like we were gonna like live together and, and whatnot. This is before I met the guy in the blackout and um and uh and his wife would follow us and take pictures and um and it was really um I think I was like I don't remember how old I was uh, but um but it was awful and um and I got in uh and then I was with this other guy and I remember um, this was something I was never ever gonna tell anybody and um and I got pregnant again, and I knew that that I knew that that would never happen and um and i and I didn't tell anybody anybody and um because I felt so sick and um and i remember how, and I remember I went and had an abortion, and I went and I took myself and um and I went to work at one o'clock and um and and it turned out his wife was had a baby that day, and I thought. I'm I'm never ever going to be able to stop drinking because this is awful, and um, I felt so bad for myself, and uh, and um, I thought nobody does this kind of stuff, and um, I felt so um, so alone and um, and So this is after after all this happened. I thought something's got to change, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna um, move out of, of this house with this guy, and that was um that was really awful too because I couldn't stand myself so much that um, I would have to sleep in a different room and I would tell him like you make me disgusted and you're disgusting and um, I can't be around you and um, really I couldn't be around me and I couldn't take some I could not take being sober and um, and I had to drink and um, and um, and so. Eventually, i uh, in a blackout I moved out again and um and I went back home to my mom and i um, she w- she had gotten to the point with me where she'd sleep with her window open and hear an ambulance, and she was sure that I was dead um, because um, because she knew what was happening and my sister um, my sister knew it was happening and um and I like to think that I don't affect other people you know I wasn't there i don't affect other people but they lived in um in in fear of that just gonna die, and um, and so I was like, and they were so happy that I came home, and I was like, you know, everything's gonna be okay, and um, and so I went back to school, and um, and I talked my mom into letting me live on campus, even though it was like ten minutes away, um, because you know then I can get the real college experience and get friends and and stop hanging out with these people I work with, and um, and uh. And so I did, and um absolutely nothing changed and um and I was drinking um by this time, I was drinking um, every day every time I could drink, and throughout work i would uh, I would drink and do cocaine and I would do cocaine. the main thing I liked about cocaine is that it would let me drink more and um and so i got I went back to school and um I had a roommate and um and she she had like all this frilly stuff on the tables and stuff, and I was in nail polish and I thought. We were so not gonna get along, and, um, <laughs> and uh, but under her things she had bottles of alcohol, and I thought, yeah, all right, and uh, <laughs> this will be good, and um, and I remember um, I remember going there, and I I forgot to say I I tried to go to school a couple other semesters in between there, but I I I it's kind of like what Josh talked about last night. I I could sign up. But I couldn't show up and I didn't have I couldn't cancel the classes. I couldn't withdraw. I just there was paperwork and I could not do it And um, I could not do anything and um, and so I I was back in school I'd um, failed out already in two semesters because I couldn't withdraw from the classes, but I was back They let me back and um and uh That's where I hit my bottom really um, over those couple months that I lived at school and um, and it was uh I, I had sold my car because um, my lawyer had told me that if you get charged with three offenses within five years you're a habitual offender and you go to jail for five years and that scared me and um, and I knew that I couldn't stop drinking and driving. I I knew I couldn't, um, so I had to sell my car so I could stop driving and um and so I bought a bicycle and I lived at school and uh I lived at school and um and I would bicycle to work and um and I couldn't go to class. I went to one class once, um, but I remember I sat like against the wall, and um, and I felt like um, it was absolutely miserable to be in my skin, and um, and if I was sober in the slightest, and um, and I felt paranoid, and I was sweating, and I knew that everybody knew what I, how I felt, and I had I just had to get out, and I just had to get back to my room where I could drink, and. Um, and, uh, and so that's what I did. I went to one class once. And the, my roommate and I ended up not getting along really well because, um, I couldn't stop drinking. And, um, so I went to work one day and I came back and all of her stuff was gone. And, um, and so I had my own room. And I was really happy about that. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh I could not, um, I remember picturing myself when I, when I grow up because I thought, you know I could never ever picture a day that I was not drunk and um, it had been such a long time since there had been a day that had gone by when um, I hadn't taken a drink and if there happened to be one day which I don't remember but I'm sure there was then I know I was obsessed with drinking because that's all I could think about and um, and it got to the point where um, I would this is what I would do I would um, I had two beds in my room and a little refrigerator that was in between them that I kept full of beer and um, and I would wake up in the morning and I would drink two or three warm beers or cold beer, whatever it was and um and I would throw up in the trash can in my room and then i would i was too paranoid to go in the bathrooms because um there were people in there and um and i was, and there was something really wrong with me, and I knew that and um, and so i couldn't be around them and um and so I'd brush my teeth with my finger and and spit in the trash can and um and then I would try to ride my bike to work, and um, and I would be, I would try to like survive the couple hours that I had to work, and um, and then somebody would give me a ride home. And I remember on my 21st birthday, I uh, went out um, with the guys I worked with, and um, and I and I remember thinking, you know, it's gonna be different when I turn 21. And um, and uh, and I went out to a bar, um, where it ended up the ambulance had to come because. Um, because I had no pulse, I was in the bathroom, and I don't remember this, but I was in the bathroom. with my pants around my ankles, and um, and there were all of a sudden all these people around me, and I like oh, we thought, you know, they're like ambulance. We thought you're dead, and um, and I'm like I'm fine, you know, let me be, and um and I was I said I just need a drink, and um and so I got another drink, and the, and I and then I went in blackout, and I I don't remember, but they said they like carried me back to my dorm room, and um. And so I, ha- I got to the point where I couldn't work, and um, all I could do was um, I'd lost control of uh, my bladder and everything. And I had two beds though, so I could like um, flip over the mattresses, which was good because um, I there was not a I had um, absolute pitiful and comprehensive demoralization, and I felt like um, there was no way out of this, and um, I could not stop drinking and. Um, and when I had got my second DWI, I um there was a counselor there, his name was Billy and um and he was the happiest person I had seen in a really, really long time. And um and he um he was sober and alcoholics anonymous and he had been to Lorton and um he told us that and um and I remembered that when I was hitting my bottom and um and I and I remembered that he said if I'm ever serious and I ever really need help I could call him but I knew I couldn't call him and um because I couldn't stop drinking and there was no picture in my head for any life without drinking and so I kept drinking and and the last two weeks three weeks of my drinking I drank from the time I woke up and I would just pass out like for a couple hours in between there and um, and there was uh, nobody would um, I would call my mom and tell her you know school's going really well and I have a test tomorrow and whatever and um but that none of it was true and um and all I would do is, um, I had a ba- I, the only time I'd leave my dorm room was when I'd bicycle up to 7 Eleven to get more beer to put in my backpack and come back. And, um, and I'd drag myself in and out of, um, consciousness and, um, and I would throw up. I, I, I tried to take a shower once and, um, and I was, I cu- I took a shower at like 2 o'clock in the morning because I didn't want to run into the people. And, um, and I remember I had to take a beer into the shower with me because I couldn't take it. And, um, And um I knew I would spend my nights um listening to like depressing music on the headphones and um and and I felt um so alone and so terrified and so hopeless and I knew I couldn't stop drinking and I knew I was gonna die and um because it was uncomfortable for me to lay on my right side and I knew I was really sick and um and I could not stop and um and so, and um something happened because um I, um when I couldn't take it anymore the guy that I worked with who was sober I said Carrie, I don't think I can take it anymore I really need help and he had been like waiting to hear me say that because he had seen what you know what what I was doing and um and he's like okay we'll get you into detox right now and I was like no not that quick and um <laughs> and um what ended up happening is the same thing for another week or so until I called my dad and, um, and because he all this time that I'd been drinking, he had been sober and, um, and uh, I remember I called him and, um, and he came and got me and I had done the usual. I woke up in the morning and I drank a couple beers and I threw up in the trash can, and he came and got me. And um I went to an intake office and um and I was sitting there and um they were like, um, can you it was on a Friday and they said, Can you come back on a Monday? And um because we have no beds open and I said, I don't think you understand. If you let me leave here I have to go to seven eleven and drink and I couldn't believe I said that because that's not what I wanted to say. I wanted to drink. Um but um some kind of power that's greater than me was working in my life because I said um, if you let me leave here, I'm going to drink. And, um, and they said, okay, all right, um, we'll get you into bed right now. And I went into a detox. And, um, and that was like in October or early November of 1991. And, um, and I met a guy in detox. And um, I was uh, and I was sober like a couple days. And, um, and I got out, and I was going to be with him, and we were going to stay sober together. And we went to half of one meeting once. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And I drank again and uh, <laughs> and uh I remember um while I was in the detox, though, I called that guy Billy that I had seen who was probably the happiest person I knew and um and he said, If you're ever if you, you need to come to Midtown and um and uh I thought okay and um and uh, but what ended up happening is I drank again and, and I was living with my mom and I was drinking vodka out of Coke cans in the living room and um and and I got back together, or I met up with this the other guy that we were like beating each other up and um and I went down to Georgetown, and I remember drinking there and um we were sitting there like the, by the canal, watching the rats, like not up with the people but down in the <laughs> canal with the rats and um and uh and it was awful and uh and I woke up again with that same feeling of I can't do this anymore and I went to midtown that night and I got surrounded by people and um and that was in December of 91, and my sobriety date's December 27th. And I and I lied about my sobriety date for the first year and a half I was sober. I pretended it was like December 15th because I um, I drank one more time after I came to my home group, and, uh, and it was like after Christmas, and I felt alone and sorry for myself. And um, I felt like when I left Midtown that night, I felt like for the first time since I can remember, I felt a little bit of hope, and um, I felt like these people have something. and um, Because I was surrounded by girls in the bathroom. Like, let me give you my phone number. What are you doing tomorrow? And I was like, nobody has talked to me in a really long time. And um, and they were really nice. And my mom and dad took me to the meeting. And um, my mom took me home. And I remember feeling like, maybe, just maybe, um, they've got something. And um, and so I drank again and lied about it for a year and a half and picked up my chip um, when I wasn't supposed to. And um, and it wasn't until I was a year and a half sober that I got honest with my sponsor. and. Um, but what ended up happening is um, I had the obsession to drink every day um, that I was sober. For the first couple of months I was sober, I'd wake up and I would think about drinking, but I'd go to a noon meeting because somebody would be at my house to pick me up. And um, and I'd hang out with people all day and I'd go to a night meeting and I would stay up really late because I couldn't keep a job and I couldn't go to school. And um, I'd like flunked out and I didn't have a driver's license. I drove for a while, but um, a lot of times I got rides. And they picked me up and... Um, And about two months into my sobriety, I was coming home from a new meeting at the Westside Club in Georgetown. And it hit me that I had not thought about taking a drink from the time I woke up until that time. And that was like almost 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And um, that hadn't happened since I could remember. And I remember thinking, maybe I have this, you know. Maybe um, I am an alcoholic. And um, I was so... um, I felt um, the best that I had felt in a really long time, and I just wanted to do whatever they did and um and i I was really lucky I, and my sponsor talks about pink cloud sobriety and I was given the gift of um pink cloud sobriety and um and I got sober and everything was going well, and I felt more comfortable with me than I had felt in a while and the obsession the the obsession to drink went away and um and I was living at home, and I was, uh, you know, I was getting along with people, and, um, and at about a year and a half of sobriety, which is really, my first Aiki um, it was in, um, New York City, and, um, and I started to go absolutely crazy. Um, I was so insane. I had, um, I'd gotten sober, and, um, and I'd gotten in a relationship, and I, um, and I had moved out with this guy, and um, and I and I had one really close friend in AA, and I was and I got a sponsor, and um, and I had to get my current sponsor at about six months of sobriety because my first sponsor stopped doing what she was telling me to do, and um, and so I got my current sponsor, Mike, who um, who uh, saved my life, and um, I will be forever grateful for, and um, and but so at about a year and a half sobriety. Um, I came to realize that stopping drinking, uh, I had heard this, but stopping drinking has absolutely no effect on me whatsoever except to gradually make it so unbearable that I have to drink again or change. And I hit that. And. Um, I remember at A new york I, I remember that being all I remember is the, the building being really tall and um <laughs> and uh, i and I had started the same fears and the same insecurities and the same way I felt came back sober and i knew and I knew why I drank and I knew I was an alcoholic, but I had done absolutely nothing up to that point in regards to recovery of the steps and um I had just i had been i'd just been okay and um and i and I started the way it came back for me was I had major hypochondria, and um, and I got to the point where I could not move off my couch because I was certain I was dying of something. And um, sober, year and a half, and um, and I was so afraid, and um, and I knew I couldn't make it, and um, and I knew um, I knew why people shot themselves in the head too because my head would not stop. And um, and um, what ended up happening is I um, got out of that relationship, and I felt like. Um, I'm going to die and um like I felt the same feelings that I felt throughout my whole life I felt sober and I knew I couldn't drink I knew that um something else had to work and I was so paranoid I didn't trust anybody and um and thank God for my sponsor that's stronger than my head because he had me taking actions that I did not believe in I did not think they would work and um and um and they did. And um he had me working the steps when I did not know I was working the steps and making amends with people when I didn't know that's what I was doing and um all I knew is that um I felt again like I can't take this and um I knew I was having brain tumors or um, I knew I was dying or something and um and uh I remember People telling me, you need a second step, and I thought, that's not happening for me, and um, that cannot happen, and and I remember struggling with um, we agnostics, and and again, for the first time, I felt like, um, I felt like I can't be so egotistical to say that if it says in the big book that God will disclose himself to all of us, and that's everybody, it can't be everybody except Bridget, and and, uh, (laughs) really, I had to um, I had to um come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity because I was insane and um and I knew it and everybody around me knew it. And um my sponsor and Brian thought they were gonna have to commit me to a mental hospital in sobriety and um and so I um, I remember um and I'd also listen to Johnny Harris' tapes. He did um a series of, of on the twelve steps, the Manuka Men's Retreat, and I'd listen to them every day because I was back at my mom's house, and I, I was so crazy. I'd sleep with the um, telephone number of the local insane asylum on my nightstand, and um, in case I had to go. And um, <laughs> and uh and uh and but I remember the day, um, you know, I I needed a sponsor then. Um, and I hadn't needed a sponsor up till then, but I needed my sponsor and um and he was there and um and I remember um he had me making amends with my dad and um and he had us over for Thanksgiving my mom and sister went up to visit our relatives and he had me and my dad he had me pick up my dad at work and bring him over to his house for Thanksgiving dinner and shared his life and his time and his family with me and um and uh and that relationship with my dad um, got um, is is current? It's good. And um, and I remember I went to my sister's graduation from college, and he told me he was proud of me, and um, he's proud of me for showing up, and because um, and, that's something I'd never been able to do. And um, and all through this next, like through like two to three years of sobriety, I was I was um, I read the big book like my life depended on reading the big book, and um, and I looked for the directions because I also got to the point where I was paranoid that my sponsor was lying to me and trying to get me. And, um, <laughs> And so I knew that I could trust the book because the person who wrote the book didn't know me and they weren't out to get me. And uh, <laughs> and so I looked for the directions and um I thought, okay, I'm, I've got to do this and um and so I did what the big book said and um and I remember one day um thinking I know alcoholics anonymous will work for me and um and I had I had come to believe and um and I didn't even know it and um and uh, I also went through a time during this time where I, um, I I stopped talking to my sponsor and I was getting another sponsor and and I had gotten so judgmental and so resentful um, at the people who saved my life that I nearly died over it and um, and thank God um, that people Alcoholics Anonymous program where if people give you a thousand and one chances and um, and people reached out their hands to me and literally pulled me back and I remember doing an inventory with Brian. Um, that uh, he made me write my inventory, and I am the type of person who likes to blame you. It's not my fault. It's your fault. And um, and he made me write my inventory. He wrote it. I had to talk it. And um, and I still have that because it, I know that that's the truth. And um, and so I got to get my sponsor back. And um, and my sponsor has been my sponsor for almost six and a half years now. And um, and um, and through the second to third year of my sobriety I got to the point where I was comfortable in my own skin by myself, just me, with you all. And um and I started to do actions in Alcoholics Anonymous I would never done before, like read the literature, like help I started sponsoring people. I started to get out of myself and I started to feel like I had like I fit here, like um it was okay for me to be here and um and I remember and um and I think I'm still um I Still doing the same things, and um, but things got um, really good again, and um, and this time I, I was I had a program, you know what I mean? I I did a fourth and fifth step, I did a sixth and seventh step. I didn't I I remember when I did my eighth went over my eighth step list with my sponsor. It was the first time that I really saw myself. Um, I did the fourth and fifth step, and I knew that it was me, but I felt like I was writing about somebody else, and I still felt like it was somebody else's fault. And um, but when I had to write down the people I had harmed and what I had done, and read it to him. Um, I got a picture of myself that was an accurate picture for the first time, and I didn't like the picture I got, but I loved the freedom that I felt. That I knew that it was going to be okay because I knew there was a set of actions. I knew I could trust somebody to guide me, um, so life would be better. And um, and and that's what happened. And um, and I did that. And I'm just cru- and I currently do that. And um, and um, I'm a part of a home group that um is really strong in sponsorship and really believes in meetings and um thank God for that because there have been so many like times that I just talked about where if it ha- if it hadn't been ingrained in me to go to a meeting, I wouldn't have gone and um because I didn't care. And um and I remember um I wanna talk about because um, I started to feel better and the promises started to come true and um and the joy and I started to have we do um a play every year, and um, uh, our home group puts on a play at NIH on New Year's Eve, and um, and I got to be a part of that, and um, I got to be a part of writing it with somebody. And I remember the first time I ever felt joy and sobriety. I felt we did a play as Tamala on New Year's Eve, and um, and I had been we had worked on it for a whole year, and um, and at the, when the curtain closed and everybody screamed, I thought, This is impossible. Um, this is impossible for me to feel the way I feel. I. I um I felt like I was a really small part of something that was much bigger than myself and um and I felt so grateful and um so grateful to be just where I was doing just what I was doing just being me with you and um I hadn't felt that and um and I'm and um going to the world convention was another time that um went to California with uh, like so many people um in '95, and um, and I remember we were just talking about it the other day. Uh, walking into Jack Murphy Stadium, and and my whole group had like three rows in the stadium, and I felt like um, listening to Sharon talk on Friday night, and um, who we were fortunate enough to get to come to a women's retreat for our um group last year, and um, but listening to her and being there with them, I thought there. This is impossible for somebody like me. I cannot stop drinking, and, um, and by myself, I cannot stay. Stop drinking, and um, stop drinking, and, um, and we went to Ikiwa in Hawaii that year, also. About 80 of us flew over, and, um, and that was unbelievable. And um, that was like, um, it was amazing. And, um, and I did not think that this. This type, I knew. I I knew um, when I was drinking that I was going to be one of the ladies, like in a in a rocking chair, drinking beer, um, until I died. And, um, and I thought, um, these kind of things don't happen to somebody like me. And, um, and, uh, getting to share experiences with people, um, that I have real friends. And, um, and I got to, um, I got to, not I got my driver's license back. I got to graduate from college. I got to, um, I'm currently, um, Getting, uh, in school to get my master's degree and, um, and this and this is all, um, this is, um, I know that absolutely everything in my life is a result of being an alcoholics and because I couldn't stop drinking and um, I could not, I could not do the things like brush my teeth or use the bathroom. I, um, let alone show up for anything, um, let alone be a part of anything or a useful member of a group, and um, and and I couldn't do that. And um, I was thinking I've been able to do things since I've been sober that are absolutely impossible, and um, and have experiences with people like when we were at that world convention. Uh, my sponsor had a had a meeting of our home group out on, um, he was staying on Coronado Island, and there was like 50 or 60 of us back there, um, having a meeting, and I thought, it can't get any better than this. And, um, and it's gotten better than that. And, um, just this past summer, I got to go to Paris, um, with my boyfriend and outreach for Ikepa. We outreached for Ikepa there. He announced it in every meeting and saw people from everywhere. And, um, and I was too afraid to leave my room. And, um, and, I cannot. Um, I am so grateful to be sober. I'm so grateful to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because it has given me. Um, I was. I knew I was going to die, and I knew it was going. It was going to be miserable, and um, and I have been um, given a completely new life with um, friends that I love, and um, and I, I'm the type of person also who's so self-centered they can't give a shit about anybody else, and um, and there are people in my life that I really honestly care about, and. Um, and that mean the world to me. And the the different um, experiences of getting to be a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. I never want to leave Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and I um, when I picture myself old, I picture myself here with you, and um, and keeping coming back because you've given me every single thing um, that I have. And um, and I hope that um, I can keep. Co- I hope I keep coming back and keep going to meetings. And because. If I forget um, and I've forgotten um, where I come from, you know, um, I get way off. And, um, but when I'm here with you guys and working with a new person, I know where I come from. I know that I'm an alcoholic, and, um, and by myself, I cannot keep from taking a drink. And um, thank you for letting me share. <laughs>